Today, we're going to read from Isaiah 3 through 4. And you can follow along on the screens. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. And the youth will be insolent to the elder and despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, you shall have a, you have a cloak. You shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day, he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house, there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me a leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves." Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. Why do you mean, what do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness, Instead of a belt, a rope, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from in its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning." Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke in the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Good morning. 
want some water. I feel like all the jokes have been made about the weather already, so I've got nothing. Um, I have heard uh, a few people who, uh, maybe I should look at the camera right now, who uh, hesitate to register for the service on Sunday because they want to leave room for for all of these fine people here this morning. Um, If you're hesitating to worship with us because you want to leave room for other people, I appreciate that sentiment, uh, but don't do that. Um, If you you register and we fill up... If you register and we fill up, that helps us plan for how to accommodate more people better. It helps us plan uh, for what things that we could do differently at the mansion or uh, just maybe even just put a fire in us to find a, a bigger space that can accommodate more of us. So if, you, if that's what's keeping you from registering and showing up on Sunday, don't do that. Um, definitely register and we want to accommodate as many people to worship on Sunday as we can. Um, and this kind of makes sense as we talked about last week uh, in Isaiah, we talked about how the death and resurrection of Jesus has led us to now a better way to worship and a better way to learn from God and experience God. Um, a little, you know, just kind of a recap. Before in, I, in Isaiah's day, people had to travel to Jerusalem where God was present for real in his temple. And that place of Jerusalem in the temple is where people gathered to experience God's presence and to worship God. But today, today things are a little bit different because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. God doesn't live in a temple made with hands. God lives in the heavenly Jerusalem and is now today literally present in you and me through the Holy Spirit. So now, even in this socially distanced mansion um, with Mr. Humphreys up here, you and me are gathered with the living God to worship and learn from that God. So that all of us, so that we could be transformed more and more into the image of God to the benefit of the world around us. And that's that's why we worship. We want everyone to be able to gather and experience the Jerusalem that Isaiah described in chapter two, the new Jerusalem that in Jesus that we talked about last week, that in Jesus is God present with his people when they gather together for worship. So we definitely want to take precautions um, in light of COVID. That's why we're distanced. That's why we're all masked up. We switch to individual communion servings. But we still, as a community, we still want others to be able to flow into this Jerusalem to experience the presence of God and to worship God. So if you register... If we max out, then it just helps us think through how to accommodate more people safely and bring more people into the gathering and experience the very presence of God in his people. So last week we touched on this a little bit, but this, this new way to worship, this new way to worship God actually begins with the day of the Lord. And we talked about how God's judgment on Jesus reveals the weakness of every other method or, or every other thing in the world that we could go to in order to find real transformation. We talked about how Jesus shows us that true transformation, true new creation life only comes through the death and resurrection of our savior. And that restoration, that Jesus as the new creation 
is the beginning of that restoration and is also the beginning of the day of the Lord. And it was kind of a small point last week, but we did kind of for a second touch on this idea that the day of the Lord has begun with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So this morning, we're gonna talk a little bit more about this idea of the day of the Lord. And in our passage, it actually comes up a lot as that day. So you'll see me, you hear me referencing, referencing it as that day. And I think when we, when we, when someone, you know, I Googled, I Googled the day of the Lord and I got like scary apocalyptic pictures and stuff. Uh, I think when we think of the day of the Lord or we think of that day, the first thing that comes to most of our minds is like the apocalypse or the end of time or the sort of cataclysmic judgment day. And, I, and there are true elements of that, but that's not the full picture of the day of the Lord. And if we don't, if we don't understand the full picture of what God is saying in the great day of the Lord or in, in that day, then we actually risk missing the gospel. We risk miss, missing the thing that could actually transform us, that could actually change us more and more into the image of Jesus. And I, I thought about this and it was like uh, a good a way to sort of relate to that is if when I got back from Daniel's bachelor party, if my wife was like, hey, Aaron, how was the bachelor party? And I was like, well, traffic was terrible on the way home. And she's like, okay, but what about the bachelor party? What'd you do? What, what was the most exciting part? I was like, so when we exited six, it was backed up all the way to, to Glenwood's, you know. So, so there's this, this it, we kind of do the same thing with the, with, the, with the day of the Lord. In a lot of ways, our conversation and our thinking about that is focused on sort of the, the traffic problem uh, at the end. And there's some true elements of that, but we miss the, the whole picture. We miss the, the story or, or the, the whole party, the good news that comes from the day of the Lord. So this morning, I kind of hope to talk a little bit more about the rest of the party. I want to talk a little bit more about that day and how God uses that day to deal with oppression. Talk about how that day deals with the problem of oppression. And oppression is kind of a hot button word today, um, but it's actually a word that's used in the book of Isaiah a handful of times. It's about 15 times it's mentioned in the book of Isaiah. Uh, if you noticed it in chapter one, it comes up in the introduction of Isaiah, which is sort of an overview of the whole book. Uh, he says for God's people to learn to do good, he says correct oppression. So it's not just a, a current issue. Uh, it's an issue that's important, an important part of the book of Isaiah as a, as a whole. And it's an issue that was a, apparently a big issue 2,700 years ago when Isaiah wrote this prophecy. So what's helpful about that is if, is if Isaiah, like we said last week, is actually written for us and it speaks about oppression, then it would benefit us to see how that day in the book of Isaiah deals with oppression. I mean, we're, kind of, we're asking, how does the gospel of that day transform us so that we can correct oppression or learn to do good? Or maybe to put it in kind of a Emmaus language, how can the beauty of the gospel lead to the end of oppression, lead to genuine transformation? So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look uh, at chapters three and four and kind of ask, how does that day 
or the day of the Lord deal with the problem of oppression. So let's pray, let's humble ourselves and let's ask, ask the Lord to teach us what he has to say as we're present with him in the gathering today. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. Thank you for all the wonderful gifts you provide for us, Lord. Um, all good gifts come from the Father of lights. And it's easy in this season to think through um, the difficult things and, and those, are, we, those weigh on us and we, we wanna think soberly uh, about the things going on in our world, Lord. But we also wanna stop and reflect and just thank you and worship you for providing a space for us to gather, uh, for giving us an opportunity through your son, united to your spirit, to be in your presence. Um, Lord, I pray that your spirit would work to make your word come alive in our hearts and just impress us with what you're doing in your son, Lord. Give us uh, clarity of mind, um, calm nerves uh, for me, and just uh, a joy to talk about your son uh, in the book of Isaiah. Uh, in your name I pray, amen. All right, so we've got a handful of points this morning, all sort of circling around how that day deals with oppression. But before we jump into those points specifically, I wanna stop for a second and just define the word oppression. So where do we go when we wanna learn about a topic? You know, it's not Google, it's not even DuckDuckGo, we go to Wikipedia. The, the infallible source of all knowledge the sum and substance of the accomplishments of humankind, Wikipedia. Um, it, is a, it is a good start though. So let's see if, oh, there we go. Cool, this is always the. So Wikipedia says, oppression is malicious or unjust treatment or exercise of power. Malicious or unjust treatment or exercise of power. Um, so that's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, so I'm just gonna simplify that a little bit for today um, and call it, say oppression is using your power to force your rule on others. Using your power to force your rule on others. Now, that's consistent with the way the Bible uses that term. In Exodus, probably wouldn't surprise us, this word oppression comes up the most. That's where Israel was actually enslaved to Egypt. They have people who force them to work hard under slavery. And in the story in Exodus, they actually take away their tools, they take away their resources, and they demand more stuff from them, more output, and, the, and literally beat the Israelites into submission. And, and the people who do the beating, who sort of do the enforcing uh, your ESV Bible probably translate them as taskmasters, but that's actually the same word as, the, as Isaiah is using here for oppression. So the, the people with the whips literally forcing their rule on the Jewish slaves are called the oppressors. So oppression is using your power to force your rule on others. So this morning, we're gonna look at Isaiah and see that the day of the Lord or that day deals with the problem of oppression, the problem of using your power to force your rule on others. And we're gonna see that in the hope of oppression, the pride of oppression, 
the end of oppression, and finally we'll end with the gospel in oppression. The hope, the pride, the end, and then finally the gospel in oppression. So what's the problem of oppression? Uh, let's start with its hope. And I would say a false hope of oppression, but then it would have made my outline messier, the false hope of oppression. So let's look at chapter three, verses one through four. It says, for behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all, all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. So we have to remember a little bit about what's going on from last week since uh, chapters two, three, and four in Isaiah are essentially one unit and they're all talking about the same topic, this idea of the day of the Lord. And we talked about how Israel had, last week we talked about how Israel had placed their hope in, in all of the wrong things. And uh, we touched on the topic that the Bible calls idolatry. Uh, they've forgotten, the, kind of the short version of this is they've forgotten about their father, the creator of the universe. The, the same God who for Israel miraculously rescued them out of slavery, uh, miraculously provided them food in the wilderness or miraculously defeated their enemies when they were, when they were moving into the land and, and even still miraculously lived with them in the temple and visually showed his presence to his people. So all the miracles God did for his children and yet Israel still kind of turned these things around and they, and, they, and, they, and they moved to the things that God had provided for them and began to turn to those things ultimately for their hope. They turned to their own resources instead of their father who had taken care of them. And so what does God do? And this is kind of where we're at in the chapter. He does what we just read. He takes away their support and their supply. He takes away their soldiers he takes away their counselors, their princes. He takes away all the things that they put their hope in, all the things that are keeping them from turning to God, who's promised to protect them and rescue them. And how does Israel respond? Do they, do they turn to their father because the things they desire have been taken away? They don't. Um, look at what it says in verse five. It says, and the people will oppress one another everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. So they oppress one another. They decide to use whatever power they have to force their rule on others. God, you, you take, if God, you take away the things that bring me hope, all these resources around me, and instead of turning to God, they try and take what they can from all the people around them made in the image of God. They use whatever power they have to force their rule on others because they still hope in the things around them instead of the very God that's living with them. And now, uh, this is like in Sunday school, it's really easy to give Israel a hard time because they're always the ones that are messing it up. Uh, but this is, this is sadly, this isn't really an uncommon response. Nations ignore God to pursue things in the world that they put their hope in all the time. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of Googles uh, to see that even in American history. Uh, take it for what it's worth, but I went to history.com 
uh, and looked at uh, some articles on uh, the slave trade, and they had an article that essentially made, made this point for me. This was the title of the paragraph, Economic Necessity Trumps Morality. Slave labor had become so entrenched in the Southern economy that nothing, not even the belief that all men were created equal, would dislodge it. Economic necessity trumps morality. So just like Israel, some of the resources are taken away and then people in mass respond with using their power to force their rule on others made in God's image. They oppress to get the economic benefits that they're putting their hope in. And see, that's the hope of oppression is that the things in this world will satisfy. And that's a false hope. That's not only a false hope, that's the, the pride of oppression. We're more than willing to ignore God in order to use our power to enforce our rule on other people. In pride, we forget the rule of the creator and we set up our own rule. Look at what Israel did in verses eight and nine. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. Why? Because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bear witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do, they do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. So Israel has decided to defy the glorious presence of their own ruling creator and in pride do things their way. Set up their own rule, which always leads to oppression because God's creatures are created and designed to operate under God's rule not the rule of each other. And that level of pride, that level of wanting to set up your own rule by your own power leads to oppression. And that's why the pride of oppression ends with God saying, woe to them for they have brought evil on themselves. So it's pride that forgets the rule of God so that they can set up their own rule. And when you tie that with this false hope in the, in the things around us, that they can get satisfaction in those things instead of the creator of the universe, you end up with oppression. You end up with things like this situation in Israel or even an entire nation that ignores the reality that all people are created in the image of God. And here we are on that day. This is the day that Lord, the Lord is showing us the problem of oppression that comes from a false hope and a pride that sets up its own rule and ignores the rules of God. So now it's easy to say, man, what Israel is doing is terrible. It's easy to look at American history and say what America has done is terrible. But if we don't realize that we put up the same false hope we're tempted with the same level of pride. We oppress. That's, we're, 
we're, we're fallen, we're, we are all in sin. And so we, we're, we're bent towards these things. We hope in things in the world. We lean towards pride. So, so we oppress. Think about it. When you leave here today, are you gonna campaign for the restaurant that you want to eat at? Are you gonna elevate maybe your power of persuasion or are you gonna elevate the rule of God to consider others as more important than yourself? That's what we do. Or what about when your spouse wrongs you? Do you elevate your rule, enforce apologies or use their failures to get something that you want? Or do you elevate God's rule and love them by not counting their sin against them? This is oppression. And it's this false hope that something other than God will actually satisfy. And you tie that with the pride of ignoring God's rule. And that leads us sinfully to use our power to force others to submit to our rule. Think about how God has called us to serve. Does it serve your child just to appease them? With, the, with your power, with the small ones, it's very easy to do that. <laughs> or to, to raise the rule of God that says you're called to teach and to discipline. Because we're protecting something in this world, maybe our time, maybe our comfort. I mean, the same thing goes for a lot of us non-parents. We're called to serve others. It's a, is it a joy to serve for the good of our community, either at Emmaus on Sunday or people in the community around you? Or do we find more hope in the things around us? So we raise our rule of wanting to protect our time, wanting to protect our space and lower the rule of God as we worship and serve others in what we do. Sin and oppression are everywhere. And it's this false hope that the things in the world will satisfy tied to the pride of our own rule instead of the rule of God. And what that does is it just leads us to use our power to force our rule on others at the expense of God's rule. You know, I, of, you know, state kind of the obvious. None of the examples I gave were as despicable as slavery or um, as wicked as the things that go on in Israel, in uh, Isaiah and in Jeremiah. But, but this is the issue that Jesus brings up on the Sermon on the Mount. The the things I'm talking about are, are seeds or sort of are rooted in kind of where this begins. It, it starts with us thinking that there's, there's this false hope that the things around us can satisfy. And it starts with us thinking on these little tiny things that our rule is more important than the rule of God. And that, that's really the essence of sin. It starts small, but it grows into these big, ugly, despicable things. And that's why oppression is such a huge issue in the book of Isaiah because sin is a common problem for all of us. We're guilty of it. Look at how God responds to those who oppress in verses 13 through 15. It says, the Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your house. 
What do you mean by crushing my people by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. This is God standing up in the middle of those who oppress, those who force their rule on people made in his image. This is God standing up and saying, excuse me? You're gonna use your rule to get what you want out of people who are made in my image? And it shouldn't surprise us that God isn't a huge fan of our oppression. The good news is that he doesn't wait around on us to end it. God actually acts to end it himself. God promises on that day, God will put an end to all oppression. Look at what he says in verses 18 through 26. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pinnets and the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veil. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness and instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding, instead of beauty, your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground. God looks and sees all of these false hopes, all the pride of those who ignore him. And on that day, he takes away those things to end oppression. And it, we have to be careful how we project emotions onto our father because this isn't God bitter or dissatisfied with his children. Just like in the first chapter, he's taking all these false hopes away. Um, just like what Tim read for us in the call to worship, he's taking all these false hopes away so that he can replace them with a true and eternal hope, a hope that actually fulfills. And I like this Pascal quote, um, you may have heard it, it's kind of popular. I think this French mathematician from the 17th century summarized it well. Look at what he says. He says, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. That's why God is bringing that day where he takes away all the things in the world so he can fill that God-shaped vacuum in the heart in each of us. In our sin, we lie to ourselves and we think our time, our peace and quiet, maybe the respect of others. We think all these things in the world can actually fill the void that's in each and every one of us that actually fill the void that we keep stuffing other false hopes into. So God is now to oppress us for oppressing others, God is out to fill the void in our hearts with the person of Jesus Christ. Look at how he describes the beauty and glory of Jesus. Uh, here, he's called the branch of the Lord, and we'll learn more about that kind of as Isaiah goes, but this is a picture of the Messiah. Look at chapter four, verse two. He says, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. 
everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious when the Lord washes away the filth of the daughters of Zion, cleanse the bloodstain of the oppressors of Jerusalem. And he does that by judgment and burning. God is so determined to create a people who truly image him in the world is that's what it means when he says they will be called holy. That means that they'll image God. They'll reflect his love, joy, peace, patience, will reflect all those beautiful attributes of God to others in the world. And he says that he's gonna accomplish that by his spirit. This is right here, this is a picture of that day when God takes away all those false hopes and fills that Jesus shaped void in our hearts. This is, the, this is the, a picture of the, the end of oppression when, when there's finally real transformation and there aren't people who are forcing their rule on others. There are people who are holy and made to image God for the benefit of the world. And I guess the question is, when we see beautiful and wonderful pictures like this, the question is, when does this happen? When does the gospel break through in our oppression and change us more and more into the image of God? I mean, who doesn't want more joy in God and less oppression of those around us? Who doesn't wanna fill that God-shaped vacuum in our hearts? So when does this happen? And we've kind of already seen the false hope of oppression, the things in this world, thinking that they'll satisfy. We've seen the, the pride of oppression, just ignoring God's rule and, and, and placing my own in its place. And here, here we are at the end of oppression with this picture. And I think it's difficult because we see these wonderful pictures of what God is gonna do in that day. And it's hard to relate that to what happens this week. It's difficult to be comforted by that when we're struggling on Wednesday. How do we take this wonderful picture of what God is doing? How do we take this idea of that day, of the day of the Lord and, and have it actually make sense and bring me hope and bring me joy and bring me transformation day to day and throughout the week. And I think this is where we're stunted because when we talk about the day of the Lord, we've been talking about the traffic at the end of the trip the whole time. And we haven't been talking about the gospel. We haven't been talking about the, the actual party itself. This is where we can see the gospel in oppression, the past, present, and future beauty. It's a categories that we used before, the past, present, and future beauty of that day. So what's the past beauty of that day? The past beauty of the day of the Lord is that God has already poured out his wrath. He's already taken away all the nice things and completely destroyed his oppressed son 
so that he could forgive and love those who oppress today. Jesus had every hope in this world stripped away from him and the wrath of God poured out on him. Jesus allowed himself to be oppressed so that there's forgiveness for us when we oppress. And that's the, that's the beauty of the reality, the past reality of that day. So we don't, we can, if we believe that, we don't have to hide our sin. We don't have to cling to these false hopes. We can bring this stuff to light. We don't have to hide the fact that we desire to rule over others. We can bring our sin to light without shame because God has already poured out his wrath on the perfect oppressed son of God so that he could love and change those of us who oppress, those of us who are trapped in sin. And the, and the beauty of, the, of that day doesn't stop with forgiveness. There's a, there's a present reality to the day of the Lord. Jesus didn't allow himself to be oppressed so that, so that no one would change. Uh, in fact, it's actually the oppression of Jesus that led to the beauty and the glory of the branch in chapter four. And we'll learn more about it, but the branch of the Lord is also the servant of the Lord that comes up later, the warrior of the Lord, the ruler of the Lord. The branch of the Lord is the resurrected Jesus sitting on his throne, pouring out his spirit, and today making his people holy through that spirit. That's the present beauty of the day of the Lord. That's God acting right now to fill that God-shaped vacuum in our hearts so that we can have an eternal hope and not get caught up in the false hopes around us. I mean, do we, I don't think we understand the, the worth of what God is doing in his son today. Today is the day that the spirit has been poured out. Today is the day that we can gather and say with a straight face that we're here in the very presence of God because of the Holy Spirit. Today is the day that we can walk out and cling to these false hopes and pray to the spirit who lives inside us and say, Lord, help me see your son is more valuable than the things right in front of my face. That's what we believe the gospel is capable of because of what Jesus is doing today on the great day of the Lord. And there's more. We can think about the beauty of the future day of the Lord the day when all oppression, all the sin of the world will be wiped away. No more false hopes, no more pride, only the unadulterated, unfiltered glory and beauty of the branch of the Lord. That's what God promises for those who don't ignore the rule and reign of God today who don't ignore what God has done already in his son to deal with oppression and is currently doing right now through his spirit. God is very determined to destroy all oppressors and oppression. No one will mistreat anyone made in the image of God and get away with that. God does promise to bring his wrath on those who oppress. And there's only two options for the oppressors in this world. We can take refuge and shelter from that wrath on your own by ignoring God today, or we can take refuge and shelter from that wrath with the shelter that God provides himself. The shelter that God provides in the oppressed son who's now risen 
and inviting all the oppressors, all the oppressed, offering forgiveness, rest, peace, joy, a true hope, and the power to be transformed by his glorious presence. This son who died and rose is now living in his people and is being worshiped through gatherings like these as nations flow into this new Jerusalem to provide a refuge for all the oppressed and all the oppressors. That's the gospel of what Jesus is doing today in that great day of the Lord. Look at verses five and six. This is what Isaiah says. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over all her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There'll be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. There is a refuge and a shelter. There is rest for the heat and there is a shining flaming fire by night and it's the person of Jesus. The one who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. The one who says, come to me and I will give you the waters of life. The one who says, I've been oppressed for you and taken the punishment for your oppression. Here here is God today in his word, pleading with us not to make the same mistake as Israel, not to ignore the glorious presence of the Lord, not to ignore the word of the Lord. Here is God offering a better city, a better refuge, a better hope than all the false hopes in the world. So every day, every hour, each one of us is called to respond to this word in humility. We can daily see our need for the shelter of the Son of God and the, and the, and the help of the Holy Spirit. And we can grow more and more clinging to that true hope and not the false hopes around us or we can respond in pride. We can say, no, no, thank you, Lord. I'm comfortable with the things of this world and I'm gonna do things my way. The truth is that God is bringing a day where all oppression will be destroyed. All pride will be destroyed and we can either listen to his words today and take shelter in the truly oppressed son or we could ignore that day. We can pretend that that day isn't happening and won't happen, but it has and it will. We can, we can try to ignore it now, but that day will come where every knee will bow and every tongue confess the beauty of the branch of the Lord because God is determined to end oppression. And we can humble ourselves and accept his word or we can respond in our pride and deny his rule. Either way, in that day, Jesus will deal with the problem of oppression. So thanks be to God, for this unspeakable gift, the end of oppression by the one who is oppressed for us, our Lord, Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, you describe yourself as a consuming fire and yet in the shelter of your son, we can come before you in prayer and you listen and you care and you comfort. Lord, I pray as we look at the world around us, as we look at the wickedness in us, that we wouldn't be afraid of bringing those things to light, uh, that we would 
see the beauty of what your son is doing on that day through his spirit today, that we would just be more and more impressed with the branch of the Lord. Lord, I thank you for a gospel that changes us, that transforms us and that gives us hope that's eternal. I thank you for the opportunity to be in your presence today, to gather with your people and to worship. Lord, I pray that you would be on the front of our mind as we, as we sing, as we take communion, and as we go out uh, as a people more transformed into your image to the benefit of the world. Uh, thank you for this morning. In your name I pray, amen.